This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. I'm Carolyn Swindell, author of We Only Want What's Best, and I'm thrilled to be here talking to Samuel Elliott on the Right Way Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for introducing tonight's episode there, Carolyn Swindell. And hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott. The person whom you just heard introducing today's episode is none other than today's guest, of course, Carolyn Swindell. Carolyn Swindell, you might have seen her. She has had a illustrious career, particularly within the Australian comedy scene. She's uh, done work at the Sydney Fringe Festival, all sorts of comedy hotspots and some of the most prestigious comedy sort of circuits in Australia. But uh, she now turns her hand uh, to another passion of hers, another talent of hers, which is writing. And this is her debut novel in which we discuss, which is called We Only Want What's Best. We Only Want What's Best. And essentially revolves around two family units uh, led by both matriarchs on either side, Simone and Bridgette. Bridgette? And both of them have daughters uh, around somewhat similarly aged, uh, albeit uh, one is, uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but one is much more uh, seemingly mature beyond her years and kind of indoctrinates the other into some uh, some sort of behavior that, uh, again, I don't want to get too much into out of fear of spoiling, but both of them are part of the expressions dance trope and they are heading to perform at Disneyland which is something that I have on good authority even before reading this book uh, is, is very sought after or very desirable within those looking to cut their teeth in the dance industry. Naturally, the dance industry is a, just like all creative arts, is a thing of glamour, but uh, there has many pitfalls and dark sides as well, which Carolyn has kind of delved into very well, uh, very succinctly within the kind of uh, trim sort of 300 page book of We Only Want What's Best. So without giving too much away, way i'd much rather carolyn talk about it in her own words so i'd like you all to give a big digital round of applause to carolyn swindell discussing with me her debut novel we only want what's best carolyn swindell thank you so much for joining me on the right way podcast program all the way from korea i believe Indeed. i believe you're in korea yeah <laughs> i am i'm in a place called jonju which is in central south korea uh just just on holidays nothing nothing terrifically uh, exciting i mean it is wonderful but yes that's where i'm calling from yeah brilliant well what's tom what's tom then uh an hour ahead of sydney so i don't know what time is it now it is it's i've got four o'clock no i'm an hour behind i don't know where i am get out of town all right well look anyway it's it's a long way to go i'll digress because otherwise i'll just want to keep talking to you about career because i'm dying to go there but anyway look i want to start with an oldie but a goodie always like to start with it is where did the inspiration come from for we only want what's best where did the the genesis come from was it an image was it a theme was it a character was it a real life experience where did it come from carolyn tell, yeah, tell me there, tell us there are a couple of things that happened in the public arena in fairly quick succession that you probably remember so there was a uh, a photographic exhibition uh in uh melbourne it was due to be and the photographer was going to be using images of prepubescent girls and mm-hmm. naked from the waist up and the whole country got in a massive lather and you know the prime minister who was at that stage kevin rudd even made comments 
comments on it saying he didn't think it was right. Federal police got involved and investigated and said there's no pedophilia here, there's no case to be answered. Um, photographer's name was Bill Henson. And um, yes. But what, what I found most curious about it is I'm not a terrifically visual person, so when I look at art, I can appreciate it, but it's like tasting wine for me. You need to tell me what it is that I'm seeing, and then I go, oh, great, okay, thank you very much. I need the experts to tell me what to do. Mm. So I thought, how does everybody, how is everybody so clear on what is right and what is wrong in this situation when I can look at it and go, I can totally see both sides of this discussion. So so that was really interesting to me was, was how everybody was so sure about what was going on there. About the same time, maybe a couple of years later, there was a dance studio in Sydney, RG Dance, and uh, the guy who was running it is now in jail for many years for uh, grooming young girls. But what particularly interested me was one of the mothers of a couple of the dancers was sending this guy naked images of her children. And she mm. she, she also did some jail time. Her husband spoke at the trial and said this guy had a real control over his over his wife. He he saw her change in this time. And I was very interested in what mental gymnastics, what happens in, in this woman's head? Like, So if we accept the premise that she loves her children, she thought she was doing the right thing for them somehow. She was mm. advancing their dance ambitions, what's going to happen for them. And so I thought those those two things were really quite interesting that, you know, about the sexualization of young girls and mm. and where is that line between art and and pornography. And I just wondered myself, particularly with the uh the, the Bill Henson images, if I was in a place where I couldn't seek advice, where I couldn't phone a friend, I couldn't look at the internet, uh, what would I do if I felt like I'm faced with a child who's potentially in danger here, but I need to make a call on that? Mm. Uh, would I have the courage to 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 say I think there's a problem here, or I don't get this, um, or would I would I be silent? So then I put it on a plane because I thought planes one of the very few places left, and you know obviously now we're getting Wi-Fi on planes, but it's one of the very few places where we where we're still where we can be cut off. Mm. So, so that was my inspiration, and and a screenwriter by the name of David Roach, who I did a writing course with, said, "Pick a single arena, um, and and to try to create the tension that way." And I thought, well, there's nothing more single about an arena than getting on a long haul plane for 14 hours. Yeah, well, so long answer to a short question. Lot to unpack from the answer. Um, so first and foremost, yeah, I actually like the the sort of the one setting and this almost like minute by minute sort of um way in which the story is presented because probably sort of innately a pressurized environment anyway way just by virtue of being on an airplane kind of crammed in those two cases both of them bill henson i saw the the um he, there was a used to be like a massive mural of his at the national gallery of or art gallery of new south wales which i saw and uh yeah that's one where it's kind of like it's very subjective but you kind of like not really sure again like what you said with the with the having to taste wine and have kind of the experts tell you what it is you're looking at I'm very much align with you on that one as well because that's something that I saw and, and you know that there's 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 a, there's a balance or seemingly of a, an innocuousness of 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 children, but at the same time there's something that feels wrong as well. But I think that that's kind of like maybe what his artistry is. It's, I, I it's deliberately provocative. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other one that you mentioned is wild because I remember that case as well. That was like near where I used to live. I lived in Moyne and that dance studio okay. was in yeah. Chiswick, so I remember that case. Yeah, West, well. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we get into kind of the dark side, 
of you know of the industry the pitfalls and everything like that that you beautifully covered in the novel i wanted to talk first about the bright side because there has to be something that people are uh, you know striving towards there has to be something that they want to work towards not a you know to get into this or to get their daughters into it because otherwise they wouldn't do it so what is the the performing at disneyland because i knew someone that had their kid performing at disneyland it seems very prestigious in terms of in terms of that it's kind of like going to the oz like the emerald city so what is this that draws people parents and sort of play, performers alike you think Carolyn that makes them willing to kind of you know endure this or potentially the pitfalls so I think it's like a lot of things in sort of modern Australian middle-class society that we pitch as prestigious when it's actually just expensive um so it's it is something that you know there is an audition involved for these things they are opportunities that that um are not given out to everybody but Mm. there's a real process to go through there's travel agents who will organize this stuff and so so it's not an uncommon experience for kids in Australian dance schools to go and do this and you know, wonderful experience. It's like going overseas with the school orchestra or, you know, any type of big field trip or whatever. A lot of fun. But I think it is pitched as something that is a whole lot more exclusive and hard to access than it necessarily is. Mm. Um, but still a great experience for the kids. You know, a lot of fun if you like yeah. Disneyland. Which um, Definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's just interesting that there's this, this one locale, but it seems to draw in people and it's kind of seemingly, like you said, very prestigious, but it's actually seemingly actually more just expensive than what it is. But then I wanted to talk a little bit about as well, I, I think it's called Expressions Dance Studios Junior Performance Group, the yep. JPEG, the Expressions yep. family, which has this almost like cult-like vibe. <laughs> and I don't think that yep. you were kind of trying to belabor the point. I think it was just that it's 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 kind of of that nature. Like what it would Tell me a little bit about that, Carolyn, in terms of how it's so easy for these sort of institutions to become this sort of um, this cult, sort of indoctrinating people into mm-hmm. believing, you know, absolute rule of others and not questioning that right down to, you know, I think it's Mr. F determining what Keely's haircut's going to be and, you know, talking about how every part of your body is an extension or a tool used for dancing, that sort of thing. How does this kind yeah. of come about? How is this normalised an institution like that? Well, I think that, you know, it's it's really not uncommon where people are, are pursuing a career in the arts. And mm. I think, you know, most most young kids, and I'm going to say it's mostly young girls because it is primarily girls who are, who are at these dance studios. Yep. But, you know, they've got stars in their eyes. They want to be celebrities. There is a massive celebrity culture nowadays, so they want to be famous for something. Mm. They love dance. You know, they see a whole lot of stuff with um, people like Ariana Grande, Taylor Swift, and it's like, I could be that. I can. And this guy, the head of the dance school, the one who picks who gets gets the primary spots in the dances and who gets the lead and the like that they are massive power brokers and mm. so these these kids and by extension their parents if their parents are overly invested or you know even somewhat invested to be fair on them uh, also start to d- defer to to trying to 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 curry favor with this person who they believe can can change things for their child can create opportunities can give them this path to being a star and i read quite a lot about what this guy grant davies from this rg dance studio was doing and spoke to a number of his former students there and there really was that very much you need to be constantly feeding the the reputation of the school you mm. need to be focused entirely on your dance you need to be dancing if you're injured because you need to show that you are committed so all of 
this stuff that is forever, the, the, these young people are on this hamster wheel to try to gain some sort of traction for the for, for the allure of one day making it big, um, being a star. Yeah, and it does sort of kind of, it's almost part and parcel. It, it easily enables, I guess, grooming in that sort of capacity for, for those yeah. like, potential predators yeah. that sort of in from those environments and do become, you know, within this sort of, like you said, power-broking sort of position. We talked a little bit about, I mean, like the, the Disneyland, but also, you know, this this potentially becoming a, uh, whether the dreams are, you know, um, realisable or not, but becoming like an Ariana Grande figure or a Taylor Swift figure. And there was another element that kind of I found interesting, particularly with Simone, actually, and without mentioning too much, but there was there was a bit of a backstory and kind of what happened with Andrew, I believe, which is a teacher or senior sort of figure within her uh, former life. And I thought that that was a little bit interesting because it was only a small section, but it kind of really encapsulated what I thought to be a generational sort of cyclical nature of what can happen, whereby even if someone, uh, a mother in this instance, experiences uh, one of the pitfalls is kind of like a broad term, but like, or point, you know, one of the pointier, ugliest sides or of what can happen within the industry, but then still wants her daughter to kind of pursue as well. So what do you think and what sort of captured your imagination in terms of how people can experience something potentially traumatic or wrong and then still continue to put their daughters forward for that? Yeah. So, so I, I am, I'm no expert in this, but yeah. it's not uncommon, I believe, for people who have suffered sexual abuse to then become perpetrators of sexual abuse themselves. Mm. There is, mm. there is some sort of link there. Definitely not everybody, um, but there is, there, there is a, a significant minority there and there is a link there. And I think that there is also something that um, if you have suffered for something, so, so I, I think there's a lot of women, I'm 53 and I think there's a lot of women who are my age and a bit older who have had things really tough in the workforce trying to um, get some traction, who now have mm. some level of resentment, resentment for young women who they perceive as having it a little bit easier because it's like, yep. well, I had to get there with all the blokes being sexist and, 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 and all of this stuff. You should you should deal with it too. And I think that's something that also can come through when people have really pursued art and suffered for it, that it's like, well, why should you get it easy? I didn't get it easy. So yeah. I think there is something, and there was something there that I really wanted to explore, that there is this real venality in in, in most of us that if you, if you laid out everything, every thought that you had over the course of a day, there's a lot of them that you wouldn't be really thrilled with. Yeah, definitely. Now, what about in terms of like mentioning cyclical or the cycle repeating itself, not so much generational, generational but the cycle repeating itself well that was interesting with um and again i don't want to kind of delve too deep in it because i don't want to spoil it but sort of what happens with the over sexualization of becky through zara and to a lesser yep. extent keely and again i think that that was a point that you were trying to make or that's something that captured your imagination whereby it was this sort of uh a person has been over uh, exposed to essentially what has led them to be overly sexualized particularly as a young girl and yep. then does so to a girl who is younger than them whether it's being inappropriate questions through on to um sort of non-consensual physical mm touching and stuff like that. Tell me a little bit about that. What do you think? I think it's a really interesting age. So we've got two of the girls who are 15 turning 16, one of the girls who's sort of 12, 13. And, and you know, these are ages where you start to understand that you have some sort of power, some sort of sexual power that you can have a cause and effect. And I think it's really interesting to watch 
uh, young women explore that um, and, and, and try to understand that themselves and come to grips with it. I also think there's a really um, a huge sort of, I, I remember as a kid myself, uh, family friends who were three years older than me, young women who were three years older than me, they were gods in my mm. mind. If I got mm. if I got some hand-me-down clothing from them, that was the greatest thing that I could, no one could buy me a gift that was better than that. So to be anointed by them as sort of worthy of some of their company or, or, or something was, you know, you really do look up to those people who are your same gender who are a couple of years older I mean uh, certainly that was my experience around I wanted to I wanted to explore that those power relationships that are also going on at the same time that these children are starting to understand that they have some sort of power and some sort of agency and that they can Mm. they can exert influence over adults even if they don't really know what they're doing they're starting to understand that they have some they have some power and you know this is this is why kids aren't allowed to make decisions uh, until they're 18 because you don't understand the consequences of this stuff but you are able to experiment with it and and, and the like mm-hmm. isn't it interesting as well like in terms of role models or people that um that, that children can naturally sort of uh, be drawn towards that, that they find them to be role models and it's it's uh, can particularly be I, I guess also this is perhaps something that caught your attention as well is that it's less uh, likely to be parents, even if parents are loved, and it's more likely to be either friends or yeah, someone that's somewhat slightly older. What do you think that is? What, what, what's when again? You know, that's kind of really exemplified within sort of Becky's uh, brightening. I think there was actually a line that mentions about how she brightened visibly, or Bridget saw that she was brightened when she saw Keely and Zara. And I'm like, what? What do you think that is about? Less outside, it's less. It's less a familial bond, and it's more this sort of bond with someone that doesn't necessarily or could still be. I'm somewhat of a stranger, but yet naturally drawn to that rather than a family figure. What do you think that's going on? I think it's part of that sort of natural separation things. You know, kids are really... uh, they, they cling to their, their their mothers very early and then their fathers and then but then they have to separate as part of becoming an adult and I think this is the whole again I'm not a psychologist but the yeah. whole thing about why teenagers act out and are so unpleasant to their parents is it's about this whole I'm learning to be an adult and, and the like but we're still social creatures so if we draw away from the people who've been able to trust the most in our lives and who have loved us the most we're still going to be looking to be um, you know planning with some people and I guess Mm. that's why you know why we become so much more attached to our friends when we're teenagers but also that that those people who are just a couple of years older than us who have some um who have some more life experience can become so much more influential on us at that age. Very much. Again, get... speculation. People who are qualified should be talking about this. Oh, but <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Though. You've definitely stressed that point. No need to no need to stress about that at all. I mean, it's you know, it's 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 a work of fiction, but it's it's grounded mm. in sort of reality. Um, in terms of, and again, kind of dovetailing on from what we talked about with more drawn being drawn to to others that are slightly older, but not so much parents as well. I think there's also there's an element of privacy or sort of an insular sort of nature to that that's kind of you don't want sort of uh, transparency with your parents about certain pointier sort of subjects or or elements particularly when Mm -hmm. it comes to growing up but then there's also the disconnect as well between parents who are young at some stage and then their and what they perceive uh, in this instance their daughters uh, and their goings-on and what actually in reality is their goings-on so um, you know, in terms of thinking that confiscating a phone will prevent someone from getting a phone or, or you know, yep. being connected to social media. How do you think, and again, the, the main thing that intrigues me, and I wondered if it aligned with sort of uh, what intrigued you, Carolyn, is how do people that were at one stage themselves teenagers or young people, how do they kind of then form this sort of 
it's delusional through love, but it's sort of believing that their children are, you know, essentially virtual. I don't want to say virtuous and then and then say that it's not the case, but that they're getting up to what they're getting up to and they don't believe that that's the case at all. They just kind of have this sort of innocuous sort of view of their their children when in reality they don't really know what's going on. They don't perhaps really want to know whether they're drinking alcohol yeah. Various sort of stuff. What's what's captured your imagination though, Europe? Yeah, uh, look, I, I think it's uh, you know, it's the age-old question, isn't it? That everybody feels that the, the generation gap, and I think there is a laziness that as you get older, you think, well, I'm right and I know better, and therefore I can make the call on this. And it's mm. like, well, actually, what is going on here? And and can I, can can I do I have the courage to consider that my child might be in the wrong here or, mm. or, or or behaving in a way that will require me to act and will require me to take some responsibility for the fact that maybe they were not prepared to make the appropriate decisions or, or the like. So I think it's it's easy to just um, it's, it's easy to shut out information that you don't want as a parent. And I say this as a parent and I say this as like I've got a 15 year old and a 10 year old and two older stepdaughters. And, you know, I grew up there was no internet when I was mm. growing up. Um, but so my mother never knew where I was when I was out of the house. It was sort of like if, I, if I said that I was one place and I went somewhere entirely different, I had to have some real bad luck to get caught out. And the like, whereas I can now track my kids, where are they at any given time? And, uh, and, and, but I just think that that, that, allows us to think that we know our kids better. And I don't think mm. that that necessarily tells us more about our kids. The only way you learn about them is by sort of listening to them and being open to the fact that you might not know what's going on in their lives. Um, so, yeah, I just I, I think that it's not a new question. I think mm. there's some new wrinkles to it now with uh, technology and social media. Yeah, isn't it interesting? Because, I mean, there, there, there's certainly that element where you sort of touched on where it's thinking that we potentially no kids because we we have the, the technology or some seemingly the ability to see everything that they're doing when in actuality that's not the case but then there's also one of the probably the the main dynamic relationship between Bridget and Simone in terms of them kind of you know somewhat powered by I think it's Simone's therapist Shanice I think mm-hmm. was there and uh, <laughs> yeah. she's saying you know make a friend on the trip and I was like and then she does she, she does try to do that you know that's that's when she's also you know kind of in um trying to you know exist as well as having you know sort of flare-ups with her MS and stuff like that as well but in terms of she does try to do that and they do seemingly form this sort of connection and there's this ongoing or this this burgeoning sort of rapport and then there's sort of this lack of understanding of one another as well, or kind of even though they seem to connect and as the, the flight continues and the sort of, you know, this like special moment that a lot of people share with the um, the eclipse or whatever it is, I felt that there was a lack of understanding of one another as like on a base level as well, because it was interesting in terms of, the, I think that the way in which they both met each other or their first opinions was that the other one was beautiful. I think that was the that they had, and I, and I thought, okay, well, that's that's a really nice, but then that's not so so much conveyed, and then there's just this sort of I don't know inability to connect, despite having seemingly these are uh, very you know, blatant commonalities. What do you think in terms of that, Carolyn? How is it that we can have seemingly so much at a face level that's kind of in common with one another, but then the longer that we get to know each other, it kind of becomes to us at least, I guess, that we have nothing in common. What sort of mm. Presents that you think always, and some right. people just find it hard to bridge the gulf too. Yeah. That it's like, okay, I can ha- make a pleasant conversation with you, but how do I turn that into us? What's that step then? How do I turn that into us becoming friends? Um, mm. And I think that that's where particularly um, Simone, the elder of the two um, 
is 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 really she finds it very hard to mm. to make friends and know how to take a pleasant conversation into well are we friends now and and what does this mean but they also come from two very different worlds so mm. Simone's 47 Bridget's just turning 30 they are uh, Simone's wealthy Bridget's not wealthy she's not poor but you know she's 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 never been in business class in her life and there's you know power being thrown around here with the generosity you know with 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 money being shared and, mm. and the like from the wealthy Hastings, that's Simone and her family. So there are those things that just um, just sort of prevent an easy easy friendship. It's also like 14 hours, to go from not knowing someone to sitting next to them for 14 hours and getting hammered and, you know, there's going to be ups and downs in that, uh, no pun intended. But, um, yeah, so I, I think that that does make it, it's, that's a real sort of crucible of a, of a young friendship there to be thrown into that environment. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, you mentioned the power as well, and there's, there's various different sort of um, versions of power that kind of uh, play out simultaneously. And I guess what one line I liked I was talking about, Glenn, with being generous, and when he's generous, he feels that once he's generous, he owns you. And I thought that was a really good, power is often tied, I guess, with this feelings of ownership. And there's various different sort of versions that we see throughout the novel in terms of in terms of that, be it the the power or lack of agency that the girls feel. Um, particularly I felt that that was mostly exemplified with Keeling and sort of her her arc there. And then the power in which Glenn sort of exhibits as well. And I wanted to know, particularly as well with power, and I guess this kind of circles back to, I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but in terms of the the title, the delving in the title, we only want what's best. Let's talk about Glenn and the within the capacity of we only want what's best in the title. Because again, without sort of spoiling anything, a decision is sort of made because of an opportunity that arises for Glenn, which could lead to sort of a more public profile. And then he subsequently makes a decision kind of at the climax there. And in terms of this sort of, we only want what's best, but I think there's an then dot, 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 dot proviso of we only want what's best when it aligns with what's best for us as well. What do you think, Carolyn? What's the go there in terms of we only want what's best seemingly for our children, but then does that sometimes then contradict or do we then kind of defer to we only want what's best for us and our mm. sort of career and public profile? What do you think? And that's certainly what I was trying to get at with yep. this, that it's like we all go, yeah, it's easy to say, of course, we only want what's best for the children. Which children? So if I go and buy a massive SUV because it's safe for my kids inside, yep. I've got less visibility of little kids on the street, so it makes it more dangerous for someone else's kids. But am I still wanting what's best there? You know, I think that, that there, there's there's always this, um, it's very easy to make these sort of broad motherhood statements that it's like we want what's best for the children. So what we want what's best for the children, we want them to have the dance career that they want. Is the dance career that they want um what what's best for them or you know who who how, how do we decide this because every decision you make is a balance between the interests of you and yours and potentially others and sometimes you get a whole bunch of easy ones that it's like well this doesn't harm anyone else but when it comes down to it and you have questions about what's right for my kid and for my family here might come at the expense of someone else what do you do and how, yeah. how good are we as people like I'm always fascinated by that idea of you know right before World War Two, we all think if we were in Germany that we would have the strength to stand up and say what's happening here with the, the the Jewish people is wrong and I'm you know that we would all be the strong brave ones but would we if it yeah. was going to mean that we could die or our kids could die or so I don't know it's very I just think it's very easy for us to paint ourselves in this heroic um uh, uh, theoretical position and think that 
I can act in a courageous and moral way in, in, in everything I do. And it's like, I don't actually know. Am I, I would love to think that I would be the type of person to stand up for other people in that situation. But if me, if my life or my kids' lives were at risk, I can't hand on heart say that, 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 that I would be that person that I would want to be. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and for anyone who did sort of declare, you know, they're the type of person that uh, if I was there, that I would have stopped Hitler slash, if they, you know, if I was at the the outbreak of a mass shooting on, you know, I'd tackle the government and do all this sort of stuff. There's a lot of people that boldly declare that sort of thing. And, you know, I hope they're just, they're never put in that sort of situation where their medal is then put to the test because, yeah. But in terms of, you know, only what's best, we've talked a little bit about power. I just find that, I think like you mentioned in terms of it being an interesting age for, for the girls. And it definitely is because I feel that there is the, there is this desire for parents uh, to impart a feeling of autonomy and agency within their their child as they're developing, but then there's also the the tacit understanding that you respect an institution, you respect your elders, and you do what they say as well, which is kind of like this sort of duality of like, okay, like do what I say, but at the same time, you kind of want me to become my own sort of adult as well. What do you think, because I got the impression, Carolyn, that sort of captured your attention because here's this sort of monolithic sort of institution that has this absolute rule over the girls that are in it, expressions, mm-hmm. and then, you know, they themselves are then striking out, you know, creating their own, not necessarily uh, the, the best sort of decisions, but there's, you know, some semblance of autonomy is displayed. What do you think it is in terms of that, that, you know, teens can suffer from and kind of are subjected to in terms of having to seemingly listen to the to the rule of others and you know mm. bow to their power as well as at the same time seemingly make their own i think it's so interesting and you know over we're seeing you know in the last few years a whole lot of cases of um uh, uh sexual assault of children and the like coming out that it's like People were told over decades, hundreds of years, and it's like you can't speak out because you are a child and you need to respect an adult or you need to respect this institution. Now, at the same time, you're balancing that with you want to raise your kids to be to be respectful. So it is, it's a very fine line between saying, yeah, you get to speak your mind. And, you know, things like, um, I don't know what it was like when you were growing up, but for me, it was like if anyone from an older generation wanted to kiss or hug me as because I was a cute little kid or whatever, it was like you smile, you don't make them feel awkward. Um, I would quite like my daughter who is 10, if someone is it, it, wants to touch her where she feels uncomfortable to say, no, thank you. Yeah, I think that's, that's great. But actually helping them navigate that and then in that moment where our conditioning is to gloss over anything that is awkward or socially uncomfortable for us to be able to go yes I support you in that decision that you are making in this moment it's it's hard stuff and it's 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 you know, it's certainly a lifetime of conditioning for me to be polite and smile and, and yep. um, uh, you know, I'm not shrinking violet. It's not like I was brought up never to say boo to an adult. But, you know, it is we are all having to go, well, if we want people to speak up, we need to believe them, we need to listen to them, we need to support them in that moment when they say that awkward, difficult thing. Spot on. And, I mean, it, it has changed so much, like, even in my generation, much the same as yours in terms of um, being kissed and hugged and or, or being encouraged to go and kiss and hug and stuff like that is 
mm. is fortunately I think mostly kind of an antiquated sort of custom. But but the, but that's you know there's still we're doing better in some regards and some in some capacities, and then in others it's kind of seemingly the same sort of thing, which is sort of what I touched on with the the sort of cyclical nature of what people can experience, particularly within you know the dance sort of industry. I wanted to ask before I ask my final question. I wanted to ask, given that you've done so much work as a as a comedian, like you've got your own solo tour and you've you've done all that. How is because I mean that the, the you know there's 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 elements and there's moments of you know sort of lighthearted or comedy within um, the novel, but a lot of it is 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 very serious. And I want to know about the the contrast between your comedic work and then writing this pretty serious novel. It is. Um, I, I think that when people hear I'm a stand-up comedian, they expect a different type of book than than the one that this is, and that's sort of a little bit um uh, a little bit problematic. But um, actually, you can't write about something like this and be glib about yeah, it, yeah, um, a, about you know hypersexualization of kids and sexual abuse and 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 the like. So it was it was a it wasn't a sort of switch off the the sense of humour, nor was it a you know dial up the seriousness or mm. or, or whatever. Um, you know, I I I tried to write uh, I, I tried to write real complex characters who say appalling things in their head and I think that that's that is where um greatest parts of drama and comedy come from and I and I do you know they're, they're actually not that 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 far apart if you're willing to look at yourself as I said earlier on if you laid out every thought you had over the course of a day you wouldn't be happy but then if you were willing to be um take one step away from it you would probably go actually that was quite funny too um <laughs> for how far away I am from the person I want to be well said um yeah and I agree totally total, total agreement comedic and drama are not all too far, seemingly all too far removed from one another. Maybe not seemingly, but like under surface level, very much not all different from one another. Question I always like to end on, Carolyn, is in terms of your writerly journey, I mean, this is your debut novel, but I always like to know about someone's writerly journey, I guess writerly journey, particularly if there was ever a sort of situation where you came to a bit of a crossroads, where you were considering very seriously giving up, and it doesn't mean you had to. It, it means that potentially, like, I wonder if you did, and if you did, sort of what made you prevail, or, you know, flip side of that, what's ensured that you've never had to kind of face that, that dreaded crossroad? Uh, many crossroads. I quit writing on a weekly basis, and uh, and and, but I also quit comedy on a weekly basis and never do anything about these things. But this is my this is my third novel. Um, the first two have not and nor will they ever see the light of day. They were more typing than writing. I, I now realise when I look at them. Uh, but so it's it's sort of 15 years in the making, this mm. one for me. And there were a number of times I started this, this, this book was, I, I think it took me about seven years, uh, four of, of which were because I was really attached to a very complex structure where I was trying to write it from one character's perspective from the end of the flight to the beginning and then pick up the other character's perspective perspective from the beginning to the end. And great idea. I just couldn't execute it. And uh, one of my readers said to me, it was because we kept having to read the same scene again from two yeah. different perspectives. It was a little bit like being on a long haul flight. And it's that's not really what I wanted for my readers is to think, Christ, is this ever going to end? But um so there and there were a number of times and I tried desperately to make that structure work and it wasn't and I, I really very nearly gave the game away when I had a few writers say, I just I'm not sure about this structure. And I'm like, oh, but I love it so much. And and then I thought, well, what if I tried to write it as a linear narrative? Mm. And 
it all became a whole lot easier. And I think part of it is, as a first-time novelist, um, you know, what is you got to walk before you can run? I, 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 I was probably trying to do something that was beyond my ability as a writer. So that was a bit of a, you know, a bit of a shit sandwich, actually. But once I, once I dealt with that, it was like, oh, actually, I'm now back. I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying the challenge of it again. Um, and so even, even in after this book had been signed and I was in the editing process I was thinking maybe I'm just not a long-form fiction writer maybe I should just stick to the you know creative non-fiction and 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 the comedy so I give up all the time um and you know then I realized well that's fine if you want to quit then quit and so of course I don't want to quit you know Um, so it it really is just a matter of me sometimes having the small tantrum and then walking away from it yeah, very much. I mean, speaking of my soul in terms of <laughs> quitting all the time, I've been doing it for a long, long, long time. That's what I've been doing it since I'm 30, mm. I'm 34, so to be 35. I've been doing it since I was 18, I've written about uh, 11 of them and uh, encountered a lot of failure and uh, and hardships and wanting to give up all the time. So I'm glad you prevailed. You certainly speak to me like that. In terms of the, the what you encountered, I mean, it'd be no good like being in love with a sort of um, a structure and then finding it didn't work. But at least in terms of like on the scale of sort of um, not being successful, that one's kind of a good one, yeah, because you maybe you're 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 reaching and exceed your grasp or whatever the the saying is. But at least you know you have this 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 sort of complex structure. So you know, particularly for a first first novel go, I think that's 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 a good problem to sort of have and to try. And- yeah, thank you. I feel glad that I did it and I learnt a lot from it. And it's like, well, then it's not a failure, is it? You know, no. If 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 you can say that I've learnt something from it. Um, so, but thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Sincerely, Matt. So, look, Carolyn, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on the show tonight. Thank you so much. Speaking to me all the way from Korea, greatly appreciate it. Listeners, greatly Thank appreciate it. Thank you. Great chat. Thanks, Samuel. So, guys, there you have it. That was me and Carolyn Swindell discussing her debut novel, We Only Want What's Best. So, huge thanks to Carolyn Swindell for talking to me on the show about her debut novel, We Only Want What's Best, which is now out with the good folks at Affirm Press, one of my favorite publishing houses in Australia. I am not subject to favoritism, but yes, I do love them. I love their stuff. I love their people, and I love the kind of books that they publish and titles that they publish. So, yeah, huge, huge thanks to Affirm Press as well for publishing Carolyn Swindell's We Only Want What's Best and for publishing all the great titles in which they publish as well. Uh, But yes, I digress. So huge thanks again to Carolyn for talking with me on the show. But in the interim, uh, if you haven't already, while I'm in the thanking mood, but of course, let us say thank you very much to you, dear listener, for listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program, as well as, you know, I'm going to say it, the ever-proliferating back catalogue there. So be sure to give a cheeky follow on Spotify or Apple iTunes if you're listening to it on there or SoundCloud, you know, far better for me to discriminate the way in which you're ingesting, glutting yourself on the only uh, way in which forward that you want to listen to the Right Way podcast program on. But yeah, huge thanks regardless of where you're listening to this. Be sure to give a follow across whichever medium that you are. And also while you're giving a cheeky follow, be sure to spread the word about the show and all the uh, good tidings that I bring with the interviewing of some of Australia's and internationals leading literary luminaries or emerging literary luminaries. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to them in this capacity. Uh, and yes, I know I haven't been doing as many eps this year, but as previously stated, it's because I am hard at work on my own long form work. So yeah, that's uh, coming along nicely. So thank you very much for your support in that endeavor as well. So yeah, if you haven't already, be sure to go back, listen to the rest of the ever proliferating back catalog, give a 
follow, tell everyone that you know about this, friends, enemies, whatever you'd like. In the interim, be sure also to stay well abreast of all the goings on of both the program uh, as a collective and me as a singular person on uh, social medias, particularly the Instagrams. The Instagrams are the ones in which I upload the majority of goings on or updates. So be sure to follow at Samuel underscore dot Elliot. No dot Samuel underscore Elliot. E-double-L-I-O-double-T underscore author A-U-T-H-O-R uh, or at the all one word The Right Way podcast. So both of them, be sure to give a follow on my individual author page and the show's Insta page as well to keep ensure that you are fully kept abreast of any and all developments on the show as well as me and my own sort of riderly pursuits there as well. But uh, in the interim, I thank you for listening to this episode and I wish you all the loveliest of days.